Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the WhatsApp with that edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. If I sound especially like Kathleen Turner today, it's because of my allergies. Actually, it's because he is Kathleen Turner. It's because you're so sultry. You are. <laughs> Welcome to Rational Security. <laughs> did I ever tell you about the time that I met the Kathleen Turner? No. Yes, Turner? I did. I did. So I was at an event. I know. It was a great event. It was lovely. She was. She came to the uh, the Cosmos Club to give a speech, and she was standing in line for the bar because she's Kathleen Turner. And, uh, she needs a drink. Yeah, Don't exactly. Drink. And I stepped in and said, may I please buy you a drink? She said, that'd be lovely, thank you. <laughs> that is and the I best meeting Kathleen it's Turner great. story. I can and I introduced her to Joe, her. and I was like, this is my husband, Joe. She goes, hello, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so that's become kind of a thing in our house now. She hello, was, Joe. Hello, Joe. <laughs> she was great. She is a wonderful, vivacious, just, yeah. I'm trying to we sound love like you, her. Kathleen. Listen, to the Listen to our podcast. And now you you too can talk to Kathleen Turner on WhatsApp in an <laughs> encrypted format. That's true. <laughs> That's true. And no one will ever know it's Kathleen Turner. Um yeah, we're gonna talk about that today. I'm here in our studio as always with my friends Ben Wittes. Hello, Ben. Hey. Uh tomorrow, I don't sound anything like Kathleen. Sounding Turner. nothing at all like Kathleen Turner. I don't know. Not even like a young Kathleen Turner. Nope. No, 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 don't have that going on. I can, I can do a plausible Strom Thurmond. I can do <laughs> a, a, a pretty good Charlie Wrangle. Wow, um, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've been hiding this from us for years. I can do Charlie Wrangle. That's good. Ooh. Yeah, bad. If yeah, you close your eyes. <laughs> Let's just do an impersonation edition. But I, but I can't, uh, I, I wouldn't even try to do, uh, so what, someday on, on Rational Security, I will tell uh, the story of the incredible encounter I saw between the uh, very old Strom Thurmond and the very uh, the young then U.S. Attorney Eric Holder. Oh, um, okay. It's a good story. All right, we'll have that with. And me. I'll, I'll do my Strom Thurmond. I'll do my Strom Thurmond imitation when I do that. Oh, that's pretty good too. All right, tune in to a future episode of Rational Security. Uh, and I'm also here with uh, Tamara Kaufman. Tomorrow. Hello, Shane. Back from Indiana. <laughs> I am no Kathleen Turner, but I am back from Indiana. Was Indiana fun? Yeah, it was um, not amazingly cold. Only okay. moderately Oh, that's good. Cold. Okay, well, the weather standards, that's nice. Yeah. And, of course, Susan Hennessy. Hello, Susan. Hello, Shane. Have you got anywhere fun this week? I didn't. I tiled my kitchen backsplash. Wow. Wow. Yeah, fun. I, but I'm still married, and my kitchen backsplash is finished. Is that a pretty easy thing to do yourself? Um, like, it's not technically difficult, but to do it without, like, devolving into... Divorce. Sort of <laughs> like a, a, you know, 
passive aggressive. Yeah. Like, right. I told you not to put that much water in the ground. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> um, anyway, things are, it's wild times in, in the Hennessy house. Sounds it like really it. really is. But very fashionable. Uh, not as crazy as Indiana. I don't think they've even heard of backsplashes in Indiana. Hmm? Tiled backsplashes. Oh, I doubt it. I feel like there'd, there'd be like a backsplash with like a rooster stenciled on it. I have very strong stereotypes. Or like Michael Jackson. Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> they do love Indiana. He's a native son. He's yes, from very Indiana. That is true. Home of the Jackson Five. Uh, all right, lots of other stuff going on outside of Indiana this week. Uh, this week on the show, the hugely popular messaging system WhatsApp is now encrypting. Everything hugely popular. All Every, the things everywhere except Indiana. No, they don't like you. Don't like in Indiana. It's illegal in Indiana. Yeah, they, that's not true. It's like everywhere except the United States. It's, it's... Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about it. if you're not if you're using WhatsApp, what's up with that? Uh, the financial shenanigans of the rich and powerful are laid bare in the Panama Papers, the biggest leak of all time. Biggest leak of all time, you guys. Really? That's what they're saying. Snow Modern How technology. Leaks? Snow yeah. Just sheer you quantity? are so outdone. That's right. Yeah. And Bernie Sanders has his own disastrous interview with the newspaper editorial board. Why should Donald Trump have all the fun? Right. Um, maybe candidates should just stop meeting with editorial boards. Or maybe they should do their homework. That's nah. No, no. <laughs> maybe learn about the things of which about which you want to make policy. Uh, let's start with, uh, with WhatsApp. So WhatsApp, uh, as we said, not used in Indiana. Um, for those who don't know, is used by, I think, yes, it's a billion people around the world, I believe. It's a billion, it's a billion devices. A billion devices. So it's, um, essentially, you know, it's, it's a messaging app, not unlike your Facebook app, like, like your text, you know. Um, but it's now announced that it's going to do end-to-end encryption of all information, uh, on moving over to networks. Um, Susan, big deal, not a big deal. Pretty big deal. So, like, I, I mean, I, it is a big deal. It's not unexpected, right? So WhatsApp actually, long before Apple, was kind of leading the charge on um, moving towards encrypted systems um, and making it pretty clear that they had no interest in cooperating with the U.S. government um, or any other government um, and sort of uh, had had very overtly made that part of its marketing stance. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things and, and very shrewd things that WhatsApp did early on, um, as opposed to some other messaging apps, was they targeted an international audience. Um, one of its founders uh, was born in the Ukraine um, and so has a particular sort of personal investment in um, wanting to provide strongly encrypted services to people who live in um, in areas where uh, the rule of law is less protective. Um, so I, I do think it is significant. Um, it accounts only for about 30% of U.S. market share. Um, so uh, in, in places like uh, Brazil, where it has an even higher, you know, it has more like a, something like a 50% use rate, or at least it did before it was shut down. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think it's going to be a bigger problem the more places it's used. Mm-hmm. Um, the question really becomes how many people in the United States are going to use it. Um, and how often is, is the U.S. government going to bump up against this um, in the course of conducting criminal investigations? Well, and we should also mention WhatsApp was acquired by Facebook, right, two years ago for more than $19 billion. So does this put Facebook now in a different position? Because it is their, it puts, it is their technology. So it puts Facebook in a uh, kind of a weird position because Facebook itself has very little exposure to the going dark problem. Most of Facebook is, well, <laughs> almost all of it is unencrypted. That is. And uh, isn't it right that Facebook 
has been fairly cooperative with law enforcement? So, so, so Facebook does not have a basis not to be cooperative as a general matter. Its stuff is unencrypted. It's the, the standards by which you acquire it are fairly well established with certain, with certain uh, caveats with respect to ECPA. But by and large, you know, the government and Facebook, unlike, you know, the companies that are really carrying person-to-person -person signal that can be encrypted, uh, is a sort of fairly well-trodden uh, ground, with a few exceptions. One of them is that Facebook has been under some pressure to uh, uh, encrypt the uh, Facebook Messenger stuff, and they've said they mean to move in that direction, though it's not clear at what pace or to what degree. And actually what I've heard recently is that they probably will only uh, encrypt person-to-person -person messages if both people Agree act to activate right. um, that. But WhatsApp puts them in a weird position because WhatsApp has been really forward-leaning in, in this department. And when they acquired WhatsApp, they really did buy that component of WhatsApp's uh, both business model and ideology. And that's a, um, so, so and Facebook's got, a little bit two-faced here. They, they got a pretty dramatic message. Facebook got a pretty dramatic message when their vice president, uh, the vice president of Facebook in Brazil was arrested, um, I believe in mid-January, mid-February, um, because WhatsApp had, uh, was refusing to comply with a Brazilian court order. Mm -hmm. um, so I think he was in prison for about two days and then was released. Um, but I, I do think Facebook is getting the, is getting the message now and, and moving forward that they, they are potentially going to be held to accountable for the behavior of their subsidiary. Right. So from a from a national security perspective though, I guess my question is how much of a difference does this really make? The the bad actors it, there has been encrypted messaging available. Bad actors have been using it. So the difference here, it seems to me, is that a well-known, widely used platform is adopting end-to-end -end encryption, so it's popularizing and legitimizing end-to-end -end encryption more than it's actually creating a bigger problem. Well, the difference is a little bit less than that, I think. So first of all, WhatsApp person-to-person -person messaging has been encrypted for some time. So what's new here, I think, is limited to the fact that basically everything carried on their system is now encrypted. Right. Group messages, mm. video, right. images. But when ISIS, you know, recruits somebody and routes them onto to WhatsApp, which, you know, they've been doing with WhatsApp and Signal and Telegram for some time, you know, and um, that message has been encrypted for some time, and that's a part of what, you know, the FBI has been concerned about and complaining about. And there have even been, there was a New York <coughs> Times story a couple months ago that there was an incipient litigation possibility between WhatsApp and the federal government over stuff that was already encrypted. So the, I think the sense in which this is really a big deal is, um, first of all, that it's a big news story. Um, it's a little bit bigger news story than it is a big deal, but that makes it a big deal. But the second thing, and you know, the result of that is yesterday I got a WhatsApp message. I use WhatsApp actually because I communicate with some people for lawfare purposes in 
countries where it is actually valuable to have the stuff encrypted. And, um, and I got a message from Jack saying, do you use this service? Uh, and clearly he had read a, uh, this Jack Oldsmith, and he had clearly read a news story and said, hmm, wonder what WhatsApp is, and downloaded <laughs> it. And, and was Many now, millions of people now have been introduced to WhatsApp by this news story. But, but this actually is really important, the fact that people like Jack Goldsmith have now downloaded WhatsApp, because what's really important about these services is market share. You can only use them, you only want to use them, if, if everybody, everybody else exactly, you know right. uses it. So, so you're saying this was a marketing ploy by WhatsApp no, to make no, no, this no. big announcement? No, but I think in terms of the impact, that's why. So, so Telegram has a, um, is a problem, sure, and, and as a, from a technical standpoint, it presents the same problem, and people could always root there. But uh, sort of regular people weren't going, uh, by the time you only went to Telegram, or most people only went to Telegram, whenever they sort of already decided to engage in, in either a criminal conversation or a conversation they, they explicitly wanted to be protected. But by bringing that level of encryption uh, to a much larger platform, a billion users, mm-hmm. that's had, that is, um, one, more and more people are going to be using this platform because these things are sort of like snowballs, right? They get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and it, uh, it, it means that uh, all of the communications that's sort of up to uh, potentially criminal communications, right? Um, so whenever uh, law enforcement is, is conducting an investigation, they aren't always looking for the thing once the person decides to commit a crime right. and they're sort of tracking it, right? They're looking for all the stuff that happened ahead of time. They're looking for the stuff that seems inconsequential, like plans to be somewhere, right? All of these little tiny pieces of information. Um, now for a billion people who, they're not just a billion people who have the service, but they're a billion people who use the service as a primary method of communication because it's much less expensive than SMS messaging. I do think the scale of going dark has just increased exponentially. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and the defaults. I, I think defaults, you know, are the part of this conversation that nobody, people don't talk about enough, but are really important. People don't change settings very often, you know, and if, if you download your, uh, you know, your Apple iMessage and it has a certain, so you don't even have to download it, it comes resident on the system, it has certain uh, default settings, those settings are extremely likely to stay the settings. And so when you change the default <laughs> setting for a billion devices, that has a very big impact, uh, even if there's nothing conceptually new about it, and even if the full range of services was available to that same group of people by flipping a switch already. And that's the lesson of PGP. You know, PGP has been is strong encryption, really powerful stuff. It's been available since, you know, right around the time that we graduated from college. And Basically, it didn't cause the going dark problem that everybody expected it to. Because you had to install it and use it. You had to install it. You had to learn how to use it. You had to know how to use it. And all your friends did. And so it didn't have network effects. Even Telegram is not default encrypted. Um, And I actually think that this laziness element is going to be sort of an interesting thing to explore. Um, One thing I'd be really interested to know, uh, so uh, WhatsApp was shut down in Brazil for 12 hours in December um, as a sort of a punishment, a sanction for not complying with the court order. In that period of time... um, 
one million people in the 12 hours signed up for Telegram, and the following day, five million people signed up for Telegram. <laughs> so what I'm really curious about is, did, did WhatsApp ever get those uh, people those back. people, those users yeah. back, right? Because because platform coordination is so important, um, I'm really curious how long it takes to move a huge group of people to a different platform and sort of sit them there. And, and I wonder if we see more and more countries doing things like suspending the service for a week. And, and seeing what happens. So here's my question. What if you set up a rival, it would have to be not in Silicon Valley and not with Silicon Valley money, but what if you set up a rival messaging app that was, we will comply, you know, that was, A, we will retain the ability to comply with process, but B, we will not comply with any of the following governments, table A, Egypt, Turkey, Russia. Russia, China, but B, because they're rule of law countries, here's the list of Schedule B countries that we will comply with process. For. We'll call it the MLAT uh, <laughs> app. <laughs> um, it app. takes three months to send a message, <laughs> and everything's redacted. <laughs> But I do think Ben is getting at something interesting here, which is that the genesis of these end-to-end um, -end encryption and other forms of secure communications, it comes out of the libertarian ethos of the high-tech community, but it also comes, as you noted about the founder of WhatsApp, he's Ukrainian. You know, Sergey Brin came from a, a Soviet refusenik family. I think that... The Telegram people are Russians in Berlin. Right. And, and so th there is a real issue here with governments that don't respect the rule of law, that don't respect the basic rights of their citizens. And those people want protection from their governments and the market is providing it. And yet it's creating a problem for governments that do respect the rule of law and do have civil liberties protections. And so maybe the industry can do something along the lines of what Ben is suggesting, you know, set up a standard and say some governments meet the standards, some governments don't. It's a, it's an interesting way of reversing the power dynamic right, like that we have today where governments, you know, try to say, well, these companies are acting in an illegitimate way and these companies are not. But I think you might even be giving a little bit too much credit here. <clears throat> I, I mean, look, I, I have no doubt that there are um, a lot of high-minded ideals here and that um, a, that it is not by accident that a number of these founders uh, emerged from, from truly repressive sort of regimes. That said, there's clearly a part of this that's just, um, you know, we can do what we want and we can have a big impact because we can have a big impact and so we're going to do it. Um, you know, and so as much as WhatsApp now is sort of pivoting to, um, you know, uh, protection uh, against authoritarian regimes, um, it, one of its, uh, its sort of its cheap, its chief uh, cryptographer, the individual who's been credited with, um, with essentially being the catalyst for this end-to-end -end encryption, uh, Marlin uh, Moxie Marlin Spike, he goes by. Um, he uh, authored pseudonym, by an the excellent way. pseudonym. Um, he authored a 2013 blog post um, where he said we should all have something to hide. And essentially, he talks about um, the importance of encryption as uh, being because it is important to have the ability to break the law. Right, and he's not talking about uh, just sort of uh, despotic regimes. Right, he's talking about um, a far more uh, radical, forward-leaning sort of libertarian view of I should be able to do pretty much whatever I want. 
uh, and, and, and I'm not hurting anybody. And maybe if somebody else uses these services to hurt people, well, that's, you know, it's more important that I have this freedom. So I, I think it's a little bit less, I think the motives are at least uh, slightly more mixed than they're now being presented. I think the principal motivation is neither uh, the desire to break law nor anything high-minded. It's a sense of where the center of gravity of consumer demand is. And this consumer demand is for uh, products that are maximally secure, including against uh, governments. Um, and for that, and that's for reasons uh, good and bad, paranoid and legitimate. Um, and uh, the companies are are draping themselves in ideologies that they, in general, already have, and allying themselves with uh, techno-anarchist libertarians um, Ooh, in, nice or label, in order to mm -hmm. service uh, what appears to be the center of gravity of the market, with one big caveat, which is it's not clear to me that it entirely is the center of gravity in the market. There is this small little company called Google, um, <laughs> which, you know, isn't end-to-end -end encrypted and kind of can't be for a, a, a bunch of reasons. There's these other little small companies like the rest of Facebook, right? And I, I mean, I think the the companies are, are weirdly schizophrenic in, in, in this, uh, you know, some of them are uh, trying to be uh, you know, as in your face as possible, uh, and some of them, you know, really aren't. All right. Well, <clears throat> I'm downloading WhatsApp today. I'm looking well, I'm for a techno anarcho libertarian to come on the show next week and debate with us. We should get Moxie Marlin's book on. <laughs> it doesn't sound like he gives many interviews. I wrote about him actually once. He was a foreign policy magazine global thinker. Wow! No way! That. Mm -hmm. Wow! Yeah, did year. he come to the awards dinner? Uh, I don't believe he did. I don't believe he did. But he, well, he was the... there, but you couldn't see him because he was included. <laughs> <laughs> he would have had the best hair, I'll tell you that. Yeah, go look him up online. He has got some impressive hair. Um, okay, this week, speaking of other big, huge kind of things, the Panama <laughs> Papers. Panama Papers, of course, being a reference to what is the bank's name? But Fonseca. Fonseca. Yeah, yeah. Mozak Fonseca. Mozak Fonseca. I hope like I'm pronouncing that, that right. It sounds like something you would eat. It does. And it sounds like something delicious, <laughs> yeah, actually. I'd have a Mozak Fonseca, please. Yeah. So this, <laughs> With uh, <some> Prosecco. Yeah. <laughs> this is Prosecco. Uh, is, a, is a law firm. Law firm is probably. It's very generous. Fudging <laughs> what it actually is. It's an organization that helps clients hide money. Basically, is the very the, the effectively apparently, apparently. Very effectively. well less effectively this week. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, but it appears to have been the victim. Uh, I, I think we gather essentially that it, it itself was hacked, and that these just this gargantuan uh, amount. Of this, I think it was several terabytes was the the yeah. the, the, the point that I saw uh, was released, um, or sorry, was was given to. Uh, a news organization in Germany, which then partnered with an international consortium of reporters and basically farmed this out to hundreds of reporters around the world, it sounds like, who all agreed to work confidentially on this and then timed the release of these reports. Um, that, to me, is the most amazing part of the story. Not that they got <laughs> hacked. Secret. Not that they had that much data. 
but that all these journalists managed to keep this under wraps for a year. And who was <laughs> not on the list of invitees? No one from the New York Times, right. yeah. for example? Yeah. Sort of an, an interesting... Well, and the public club. editor uh, wrote about this yesterday, saying that it was... Uh, I think it was the public editor, but there was some question or some concern among the consortium um, that the New York Times, basically the implication was, would not agree to our embargo and kind of wanted to do things on its own schedule. And they uh -huh. were like, well, then we're not working with you. Which is a very interesting, you know, sort of element of this, you know, is it can you can you do something of this scale without the New York Times? Well, and the answer is yes. It's the can. democratization you of journalism. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> it, it's really been astonishing how <clears throat> this has, well, there's a number of angles we can talk about this. One of the things that was most interesting to me was um, the just tremendous uh, network, complex network of shell companies and individuals that moves around money for Vladimir Putin and his inner circle, which there was a tr terrific article about this. I mean, it almost the whole thing was worth it just for the embarrassment. Just for the embarrassment of Vladimir Putin, right? And, Who's and still his cellist? Is Who's, it a cellist? His it's a buddy? friend of his who is and a godfather cellist of his and godfather right. of his child, and, and former judo sparring partner. I thought of you. When I yeah, said no, no. That. I still just reminding. Would you would you duel the cellist instead yeah, of Putin? Yeah, right. Would you? Yeah, sure. So I love that this is like a billionaire cellist. I just love yeah. the concept of a billionaire cellist. Yeah. As opposed to like like a poor cellist. Yes, of course. The suffering I think Interpol artist. would like the concept <laughs> of this too. But I also am just, I was really struck reading that story and some of the other stories that came out about how complicated it is if you want to hide your role in yeah. ownership of assets and you want to be able to transfer funds in a way to avoid taxes you have to set up dozens of shell companies to own one another and funnel assets to one another. It's a huge amount of paperwork for one, you know, middling millionaire to... God, these people must just hate paying taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're right. I guess they really, really hate paying taxes. So I think one thing that's interesting is, you know, as you mentioned, this is... Um, an enormously sort of like international tax law is just it's enormously complex. Um, I think I saw someone on Twitter wrote, um, you know, the average journalist knows about as much about international tax law as they do about surveillance law. Godspeed. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a pretty good That's a low blow. <laughs> they had a year to get smart on it. Um, you know, but it actually appears that a lot, while sort of while appalling and egregious and, and also just kind of interesting, um, it doesn't actually appear that that much of this is illegal, right? Um, and so I I sort of, yeah. you know, I think myself, right, I'm, I'm someone who is, um, who is relatively outraged by leaks in kind of all their form, right? I think, um, I think the stone leaks were an egregious act of, uh, of treason with, um, with catastrophic consequences. I think it's bad treason. when the, oh yeah, okay, Snowden we'll leaks? Oh my God, shame. All right, um, table yeah. that. Yes. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, just just uh, an appalling criminal act. I also think it's wrong when the administration uh, uses leaks to sort of um, uh, reduce pressure on itself without having any kind of litigation accountability. I think in general, like, eh, it's like the system's not quite supposed to work this way. Um, that said, I will say that, like, I found this pretty interesting, right? Like, Vladimir yeah. Putin hides his money. All these sort of, all these, like, bad people. I don't like tax evaders. And so uh, w one thing that I th was sort of, I was struck by was, um, 
is my moral indignation, um, because a lot of my indignation about the um, the illegitimacies of things like the intercept leaks was, it's all legal, it's legal, you guys are just burning things that are legal, nobody committed any crimes, and like, you're acting as though you and have this And the millionaires could say the same thing, and Susan. And now the millionaires can say the same thing, so does sure. that mean but, I'm full of it? But wait a minute, I'm not, first of all, I'm not sure the millionaires can say the same things. The transactions that these leaks refer to might be themselves legal. But to the extent that the purpose of the transactions is to hide assets from local tax, local or national tax authorities, they may be done for perfectly illegal reasons. So it may be, you know, it, 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 think of it more like setting up a camera that's taking pictures of people, um, you know, crossing the street. And you say, well, they're just talk crossing the street. But then if I tell you, well, what's on the other side of the street is a brothel, right? Then, then the fact that you have interesting evidence of people moving in the direction of that brothel is not simply activity that is dismissible as well. It's all legal. It's, it's legal on its own terms, but it's probably in many cases evidence of gross illegality. I, I think you're both getting hung up on the on the legal question when that's not really what's impactful about this. What's impactful about it is the public shaming. Um, whether it's legal or illegal, you know, the fact that the that the Prime Minister of Iceland has already resigned over this has nothing to do with... The whole government fell apart. <laughs> God, Iceland. Right. <laughs> Melting. But, but this gets to my point. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, there are governments um, for whom public shaming really matters because they are... Lo- Not this one, and, but other ones. And there are governments that where public shaming doesn't matter because there isn't a culture of lawfulness around anything. And so if the leader of a country is shown to have stolen money, there are a lot of people in that society who would say, well, he, he look, how, he got away with it for a long time. Good for him. Right. You know, and so I... I think that the impact of this leak is going to be differentially felt in in societies where you have strong cultures of lawfulness, even though the revelations should perhaps have more impact on the really corrupt places. Can I ask to, to sort of the journalists in the room, um, does it matter to you how uh, the documents are obtained in reporting on a story? Like, does it matter if they were hacked? Does it matter if they were stolen, if it was a whistleblower? How do you think about this stuff? Well, it matters as a as a defrocked journalist here. Um, <laughs> Which is I'm an excellent term everyone. for you. Um, I, I, look, I think... It matters very much whether you, the reporter, engaged in unlawful activity to acquire. You know, you're not allowed to go out there and mug someone to take his briefcase and then find out what's but in. That's what they do in the movies. I know, but like, <laughs> we actually don't do that. Um, Nor are you allowed to ask someone who has access to classified information to go get it and steal it and give it to you. Right. On the other hand, if you are a passive recipient. Somebody wants to leak you information. Um, that's a different matter, and and journalists are legitimately often in the business of being the vehicle through which somebody else commits a crime. But can I take it a step further? Then well, sorry, well, I was going to say to take it on the bend. It, it, it doesn't matter. The short answer is no. And if and if we questioned the means and manner by which information was acquired that was given to us. 
And if we stopped short of publishing something that was illegally acquired, we probably wouldn't publish most of the things that have been considered to be great and important pieces of journalism. Most people are telling us things that they're not supposed to and are either violating some law or agreement frequently when they, when they do that. And, and by the way, in this case, uh, I mean, I thought it was interesting that within 24 hours of this story breaking, the Justice Department said it was looking at whether there were tax violations in connection uh, with it. So it's not, it's not saying, well, this was illegally leaked material, therefore we're not going to pay attention to it. And I'm not right. sure why well, but it wasn't journalists should be wholly... was a victim. It was a private sector entity that was the victim of this leak. So. Well, it would be interesting if, if it was a U.S. company that had information leaked, would the United States government, would the Department of Justice open an investigation of into hacks? Yeah. Sure. Not of the hack yeah. of, right, so, um, so if J.P. Morgan was hacked, and a, a huge data dump uh, came out, and in that data dump was some evidence of illegal activity, does the Justice Department oh, sure. get to use that? Sure. Absolutely. And it does. I mean, there's no exclusionary rule regarding illegal... Didn't this happen with Enron? I mean, that there was reporting on activity inside Enron? And... I mean, there's leaks all the time that involve theft of proprietary yeah. information that trigger yeah. investigation. Sure. and. And the, the government generally does not take the position that there's some exclusionary rule regarding its, you know, knowledge of that information because it happens to have come to light by dint of a criminal act. Yeah. Well, you're going to take it one step further, you say. Oh, no. So the reason I'm thinking about this is sort of, so with kind of the um, the hypocrite, schadenfreude sort of sense, uh, you know, like whenever I see like Donald Trump's uh, voicemails and emails being hacked, I laugh because I don't like Donald Trump. Um, that said, like, I don't want to live in a world where all of our political candidates, um, like their emails are being hacked and their voice messages, right? Like that, I, that's, I don't think is a good thing for our political discourse or our country. So I do sort of wonder like, at what what is the is the first step to to preventing that world saying hey I'm not going to consume that kind of stuff I'm not the media shouldn't be reporting on on that kind of stuff because because it's bad and because no, it's wrong no, no the 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 first step is to say the computer fraud and abuse act needs to be enforced and people who commit these acts uh, need to be prosecuted and we hold multiple ideas in our minds at the same time. One is that Anonymous is committing crimes, and the second, and that when we catch them, uh, we should prosecute them and prosecute them aggressively, and that goes for whoever is engaged in this activity with, um, with uh, the Panamanian quasi-law firm. Um, but the, the second idea is that the collateral consequences of criminal activity are not all bad, and um, and sometimes um, people, particularly people who are engaged in something like vigilanteism, uh, there are collateral social goods associated with their activities, and we don't have to give those back just because we don't acknowledge the legitimacy of what we do, of what they're doing. Okay, but this hacker is he Daredevil or the Punisher? Ooh, this is the real question. My, my comic book knowledge is not enough to answer that question. Tammy is the biggest nerd in this room. <laughs> Sorry. Can you use a different I, I need a different analogy. Could you like draw on like 19th century romantic novelists for me or oh, something? Oh, Shane. Know. That's why I love you. <laughs> 90s filmmakers. <laughs> uh, okay. I, 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 
I, I would like to clarify. Tammy is not the biggest dork in the room. She's the biggest dork in the room in her subset of dorkdom. <laughs> it's a subculture of a subculture. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I actually think if you knew the full range of Tammy's oh, no. dorkdom activities. She's already admitted the Highlander thing, so I don't know how much more yeah, we but, can but, do. But, but, but you, haven't, deeper than that. You, you haven't heard about the, the D&D group. Oh, God. I think, I think we're getting into spousal privilege. We Speaking have, have of exclusionary yes. rules. We have surfaced many think issues. think we should all live our lives in public, and I agree. <laughs> many issues today that we're going to require other shows. But we are going to make fun of you about I, that I, later. I, am, I, am, I have sworn never to uh, leak uh, the, the details of the D&D group, um, but somebody should look into it. <laughs> wow. The Ron Wyden wow. of Tammy's life. That's just an invitation. You would be appalled if you knew. <laughs> you just said an invitation every hacker to dox Tammy's D&D files. All right. Um, let's move on to Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders had an interesting meeting with the New York Daily News. He sure did. Great night last night in Wisconsin. <laughs> Not such a great meeting with Not the such New York a great meeting. Yeah. Um, well, we already knew that Bernie Sanders had not really made foreign <laughs> policy, uh, I guess, a hallmark, a centerpiece of his campaign. Um, I think it's a, you know, he, kind of, he sort of probably fumbled foreign policy questions. I think it was more like he was like, I don't care so much about yeah, it. He just avoided them. Just Throughout avoided the campaign, them. he's avoided them very successfully for the most part. But I think the real sort of this maybe surprising part was when he w- was pressed on the issue of what I think is arguably a national security issue related to banks and how you would break up big banks and the too big to fail questions, all the things that were you know obviously highlighted by the 2008 financial crisis, and really kind of pressed on how he would come in uh, as president and break up these banks and do all the things that he says that he wants to do to bring them to heel. And what was revealed was that he doesn't seem to have a very nuanced or detailed plan for how he would actually do that or understand how it is that, you know, the president of the United States can't simply come in and unilaterally accomplish some of these. Right. And I mean, in some ways, this is a lot like the Trump transcript. I mean, sort of shockingly, right? It's, um, he has this, we're going to break up the banks. And then they say, okay, how? What is cite to the authority under which you're going to break up these banks? And they say, well, well we're going to break them up, Dodd-Frank. And they say, well, what, what Dodd-Frank? part of Dodd-Frank yeah. authorizes it, you to do this? It wasn't even, it was, it, it was interesting because he said, well, we can decide if banks are too big to fail. Okay, how does that happen? And this is a guy whose whole campaign in every debate and every speech, he's been talking about this law, Dodd-Frank. He's been talking about this law, Glass-Steagall. He's been in the legislature of the United States for how many years? And yet he doesn't have sufficient familiarity with this legislation that he's constantly this is whipping not the on the trail. of someone who's read Dodd-Frank <laughs> or Glass-Steagall. Right. And so I think that's what I found really striking is that this is supposed to be his zone of expertise. It's the stuff he says he's been working on for decades, and he, do- he isn't able to answer some basic questions so, you know, all of the critiques that, well, he, he has magical thinking about how he's going to accomplish his goals, there'll be a political revolution and all good things will happen. I thought that at least on this core issue, he would have a little more to offer than that. And I was really surprised that he just didn't seem to have it. So, so I, I actually haven't read this transcript uh, about which I want to be candid. But let me, I, I have a question. Um, his, if I were him, I would not answer this question. 
And the reason I wouldn't answer this question is that the president actually has no authority to break up big banks. And in no conceivable universe is uh, any Congress that's going to be elected along with Bernie Sanders, if you imagine Bernie Sanders could be elected, going to give him that authority. So the honest answer to the question is, I can't break up the big banks. Um, I've been engaged in magical thinking. If you push me on the actual authorities, it doesn't exist. But I think uh, that was the problem, is that he didn't seem to understand that they didn't right. exist. So, so rather than acknowledge that, you pull a Trump, and you bluster, and you make it about a for act of will. Well, but that suggests he was being deliberately dishonest in his answers, rather than simply being ideological and ignorant. Those are two alternative interpretations. I'd kind of rather the first. I'd kind of rather the the ideological than the dishonest. But maybe you're right, Ben. I mean, my 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 question is, why should we not give him the benefit of the doubt that he actually has a, you know, a, has a reasonable sense of what his actual authorities are, and he's promising more than those authorities can deliver in the hopes that those authorities might change over time. Well, that makes him like every politician, though, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, look, he did give some insight into his sort of foreign policy thinking. Uh, one, uh, I know Ben hasn't read the transcript, but I think that this um, this question you will an answer you will find quite interesting, Ben. The Daily News says American special forces recently killed a top ISIS commander after they'd hoped to capture him. They felt uh, that they had no choice at that. <clears throat> what would you do with a, cast, a captured ISIS commander? Sanders, imprison him. Daily News, where? <laughs> Sanders, and try and get as much information out of him. If the question leads to Guantanamo, dot, 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 Daily News, no, separate and apart from Guantanamo. It could be there, it could be anywhere. Where would Sanders imprison, interrogate? What would you do? Sanders, actually, I haven't thought about it a whole lot. Okay, so that's refreshing. But he does go on to say he <laughs> thinks they could be brought to U.S. prisons and be kept here uh, so, with no problem. So that's a, that's an answer that doesn't especially bother me, because um, honestly, it's not that different from uh, you know what both Obama and Clinton have said at different times. There's a you know deep commitment to close Guantanamo and a deep unwillingness to think about what the future, how to handle future detainees. And uh, rather than say, you know, give a blustery answer that amounts to, I don't know, I haven't thought about it very much, which is the, the, what a lot of other candidates are doing, he's just basically saying, I don't know, I haven't thought about it very much. And I, I don't think that's substantially that different from what the Obama administration's been saying for the last seven years. So fair enough, and it's in keeping with his reputation of being sort of a straight talker, and and you know so maybe that's to a degree admirable. I th I found in his interview the answers to the questions on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict a bit more troubling in terms of foreign policy thinking, because this is a topic on which he has spoken publicly actually quite a bit, including before he decided to run for president. He's made remarks that were considered controversial in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party about, for example, Israel's uh, counterterrorism campaign in Gaza uh, in 2014. Um, and he was basically asked about that same topic in the interview today and ducked, or this week, and ducked it completely. He gave an entire speech on Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict not two weeks ago. 
And so it's very fair to follow up with some questions there. And again, he said, well, I don't really know. I haven't thought about it on the topic of Israeli settlements. He said in his speech he wanted to see Israel pull back settlements. The New York Daily News asked him which settlements and what are you looking for. And he basically said, well, the illegal ones. And he said, it's for, it's, I'm, I'm, not the, I'm not running for uh, Israeli office. It's for the Israelis to figure out. Well, the, the Israelis have actually figured it out, right? This is this sort of like... Well, and know, moreover, he had stated a preference of what he would want as president to see and to do. And so it was a totally fair question. And he revealed both, I think, a lack of knowledge on a subject he'd given a speech about and claims to care about a lot, and a lack of caring, frankly, to fill in any of the details. I think I think one of the interesting things about uh, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, is that lack of caring. And I mean, I started noticing, I, I was tweeting about it months ago in the early debates with Hillary, that if you asked him a question about ISIS, you got an answer about big banks. And that this was somebody who very deeply could not muster moral, strategic, policy, anything about anything beyond the shores of the United States that didn't involve uh, trade and therefore domestic uh, economic stuff. He was somebody who's really, uh, who's, you know, whose political and moral and strategic vision is purely about domestic populism to the point that the only thing he was ever willing to say, except about disastrous trade deals um, about foreign policy, was that he'd voted against the Iraq War, which he said sort of over and over and over again. And and I, I do think that raises the question of, what percentage of the job of president he's really running for and whether he's really running for secretary of the treasury or you know you know some you know like what's what's the portion of the executive power of the united states that he really wants to exercise you know i wonder if too if there's not a little bit i mean the people make comparisons to trump and sanders a lot and i think it's usually a pretty dangerous comparison but one way that I think about Sanders is he's a little bit like um, the dog who caught up with the car. <laughs> and I think in the beginning, this was a message campaign and an issues campaign, and, and issues that clearly large portions of the Democratic electorate feel very strongly about, and particularly young people. But he's doing way better than anyone expected. It's the and so, Robert Redford character in the candidate. Right. So he wins and looks and says, well, now what? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, not the, and not that Sanders, I think, has a plausible path to the nomination, but this much is true. He is going to exert a level of influence in Democratic Party politics and potentially in national policy that is greater than anything he could have envisioned when he set out on this campaign. And I think that what you're seeing now is that the reality is colliding with the sort of the, the neat idea of the campaign, which is that he's, he was never really running for president, and so perhaps he didn't think these things through that much. Um, and I think similarly with Trump. I mean, there was actually an ex-spokesperson of his who came out and said the plan was never for him to, to become win. the nominee. It was to come yeah. in second and essentially to create sort of a force and a movement, which for Trump probably translated into some commercial interest as well. Um, but uh, you see two guys here who are succeeding beyond their wildest dreams. Whoops. And it's now becoming maybe a little bit of a nightmare. Uh, so we'll see. Um, okay, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I can go first. Uh, my object is a is emotion. 
a motion. That month, a legal motion. A legal motion. Not that an seems emotion. more like a, a. Doesn't that seem more like a wordplay? You know what? We do books here. Yeah, that's true. We do a lot Wait, of things that are not actually. You can hold movement. It's a motion movement. I'm gonna hold this up. Uh, actually, this is a, this is actually just a thing worth an update. But a motion that uh, State Department lawyers filed on Tuesday night in one of the two cases where discovery is being allowed with regards to Hillary Clinton's emails. Uh, and how that whole ClintonEmail.com situation came about. Um, and what's interesting is that they are, State Department is basically signaling, don't even think about calling Hillary Clinton and trying to depose her. This case was over by Judicial Watch, uh, because we will block that and are trying to narrow the nature of the questions that can be asked to only focusing on the email server, not classified information, not Huma Abedin's employment, even though that's the underlying question in the suit. So I only bring this up to show you that it's a, we're heading towards a point where I think former Clinton staffers are going to have to, they're going to be deposed in mm-hmm. some manner uh, in one of these cases. Uh, but now we see the fights going on to try and limit what it is that they can actually discuss. But it also seems like the, uh, the other factor is that the FBI investigation does seem to be winding down. Yes, but not in any rush, as Tim Comey said this uh, week. You know, they shouldn't be in any rush. On the other hand, if they're seriously talking now about interviewing either uh, the senior uh, Hillary people or Hillary herself, that does suggest that they're reaching the end of an investigative phase um, and that whatever they are or aren't going to do is going to happen this spring rather than summer or fall. Oh, we can only hope so. You know, at the beginning of this week, some news anchor I was uh, uh, said, we're now halfway through the presidential primary season. And I almost burst into tears mm. because this <laughs> thing has been going on so Forever. long. And I kind of feel like the the email thing you know, has been going on so long. And by the way, the Benghazi thing is still going on somewhere, too. And at some point, all of this will be over. (laughs) There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Or maybe darkness. Or maybe there's a train (laughs) coming towards you. Uh, Tomorrow, do you want to talk about your object? Well, I'm apparently following fictitious paid paths that lead to darkness, at least according to this wonderful email that I received overnight. I published a short article on Egypt earlier in the week on the um, Center for Middle East Policy's Marcaz blog. And it was really um, a look at the the negative trajectory in Egypt and the fact that, in my view, I don't think there's anything the United States can do to successfully shift Egypt off this trajectory without a sort of transformation in the attitudes and approach of, of the Egyptian leadership. Um, Apparently, this article upset some people. I don't know who they are because they sent me an email with a list of names at the bottom that I know are 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 not true. Like, they, some of these are people that I know. And I wrote them and said, do you know anything about this email that I got, this open letter to me? <laughs> and uh, And they said no. But I just want you to know that um, according to these anonymous sources, I continuously spew venom about Egypt. Um, I'm a pawn with no credibility, no honesty, no legitimacy, and nothing to offer 
but poison and fiction. Wow. And Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> well, I think they, defense, they didn't and know about two that. Of my favorite things. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should try a new career. Um, and that I should consider being the spokesperson of Get This Coalition, the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, ISIS, and Hezbollah. You know, that would wow. be a tough job, but I think bring them Tammy all together. could do it. Tammy is my nominee for ISIS-Hezbollah joint spokesman, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, I just like to say that while I love hearing from people I've never heard of and don't think actually exist with their freely offered opinions about my writing, I don't think it'll have much impact on poison my Poison and venom. <laughs> poison, venom, fiction, PR. Yeah. A new, a new <laughs> PR company. We're gonna need right? a bigger business card, but we'll get it. Somewhere. We'll get it. I, I will say though that if you want to tweet at us at Rational Security using your actual Twitter handle and maybe even your real name, even if you have an egg. It would be great to hear from you, yeah, even and if we'll, you have and an we'll, egg. Tweet us this week, and we'll, uh, we'll take some reader questions, listener questions for next week. Yeah. So if you want to talk about anything we're talking about on the show, or you have some comments you want to share, uh, and we'll read them on the podcast. Uh, Susan? All right, so my object lesson is almost a riot. It didn't hit riot levels, um, but last week, outside of the venerable Brookings Institution. It's the Brookings Institution, by the way, not the Brookings Institute. Note to reporters. Note to all reporters (laughs) everywhere. Um, uh, Outside this venerable institution, which we um, uh, taped this very podcast, um, there was a bit of a kerfuffle. That's a uh, good word, kerfuffle. Quite strong kerfuffle. Yes, the um, I couldn't quite tell if it was security guards or just entourage of uh, of President Erdogan, who was here giving a speech at Brookings, um, and protesters and anti-Erdogan protesters um, who came to express their their feelings. Um, It was really a a rather remarkable day here. Um, A lot of sort of uh, veteran uh, Brookings staff said they'd never seen anything quite like it. There were fist fights. Strobe Talbot broke up a fist fight. It was a kerfuffle with fisticuffs. Mm -hmm. There was fisticuffs. Um, uh, it was it was really something else. And um, and uh, from my sort of uh, the the what I could see from the eighth floor window, it was a lot of sort of um, it, thugs uh, in Erdogan's uh, entourage, kind of uh, inciting protesters, calling people PKK whores yeah. among other things, and trying to scream louder than they were screaming. Uh, we yes. usually don't have beatings at the Brookings Institution. Yes. I mean, sometimes, yeah. okay, nothing so Except exciting. when you're fighting your interns. Yeah, right. that's right. Um, Since the Brookings Fight Club, we haven't seen anything like. But it. a huge shout out to Brookings uh, security staff who handled themselves really remarkably, as well as DCPD. Who, and um, Strobe Talbot, who broke up fisticuffs and escorted journalists into the building. Who right. knew? Who knew? Way to go, Strobe. Part of his job description now. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to past shows at spaghettionthewallproductions.com. Remember to tweet at us at RATL Security, and we'll definitely uh, answer some questions, uh, read some comments next week. Please be sure when you download the podcast at your favorite uh, on your favorite app to leave a rating. Yeah, we need more ratings. Yeah, ratings and comments would really be a huge help. So please, please, if you are listening to the podcast and you haven't already, leave a rating, leave comments. The way these things work is that is how places like iTunes and Stitcher let other people know about the podcast. Um, So help us spread the love that way. Just take a couple minutes to do it. That would be great. 
Uh, the podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Moxie Marlin Spike and the Billionaire Cellists Club. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. I'd buy, buy that CD. I'd buy that CD. Yeah. I get that album. Um, no, of course, our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. I don't know if she plays cello. She probably knows some billionaires, though. She lives in Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of them over there. Sophia, get that billionaire cellist club together. Get it going. We're counting on you, Sophia. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.